0: Welcome to the Frankly Speaking Podcast, Friends of Europe's weekly broadcast on the topics of European and world affairs. Coming up this week.
1: I mean, how, how do you see this decoupling debate? Uh, again, is it overhyped? To a certain degree, the way China is
0: viewed is almost kind of reconstitutes the way the region is viewed.
2: But I think when it comes to AI, it's it's incredibly interesting. I think it's neck and neck between China and the United States.
1: Good morning, everybody. Welcome from from London and welcome to our weekly uh, podcast, frankly speaking, uh, by uh, Friends of uh, Europe. Uh, I'm Jamie Shea, Senior Fellow at Friends of Europe, and it's my pleasure to have the opportunity once again uh, to uh, act as moderator uh, for today's session. Um, Those of you, dear viewers or dear listeners uh, who follow us regularly, know that we've been devoting these podcasts mainly to the war in Ukraine and giving a European and North American perspective. But today we're going to do something very different, we're going to go to the Asia Pacific region, and to look at how security threats and security challenges are perceived uh, in that uh, region, of course, uh, uh, an Asian perspective on the war in Ukraine, or perspectives as there are uh, undoubtedly several. Uh, would be helpful uh, uh, too. Uh, And in order to guide us through Asia-Pacific security challenges, particularly uh, the uh, rise of China, uh, China's increasing economic domination of the region, the technology challenge that China poses to all of us, to guide us through these complex issues, I'm delighted to welcome Liam Gibson, Uh, Liam is an Australian, currently resident in Taiwan. Uh, He's a journalist, he's a broadcaster and and writer, uh, and he is truly an expert on all of the topics that we want to uh, discuss uh, today. So Liam, thank you so much for being our special guest and for joining us. Uh, I've also uh, got the pleasure, as always, to welcome back my fellow senior fellow, uh, Chris uh, uh, Kramidis-Cottany, Courtney, is going to be here to discuss these issues with Liam, and to provide his own expertise, particularly on issues like resilience and uh, the future technologies that we need to keep our eye on. So let's get straight to the chase. Liam, again, a warm welcome to you. I suppose to begin with a a, a general question. Uh, you're in Taiwan, you're an Australian, you know the region very well. How is the challenge of China now perceived? Uh, Is it still perceived primarily as a sort of an economic challenge? Are people worried about uh, China dominating future technologies? Uh, Or is the muscle flexing of Beijing vis-a-vis Taiwan increasingly making China uh, perceived as a military threat now? So give us a sense of how the image of China in the region has evolved over the last couple of years.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Jamie, that's a fantastic question and I'm very much looking forward to discussing it with you and Chris. Uh, Yes, all of the above we could almost say that there there are sort of fractions of of different uh, levels of truth in in, in that question that you sort of uh, put forward to us. It would be interesting to say that, to a certain degree, the way China is viewed is almost kind of reconstitutes the way the region is viewed and it's interesting that you use Asia Pacific uh Jamie because of course the Asia Pacific is the region uh that is the term we've used for this region for for decades but it it typically denotes more of a an economic focus i mean for example APEC the Asia Pacific economic uh community right that that was born out of the time uh when economies and countries in this region were so much more optimistic and uh, gung-ho to, you know, join with China, integrate with China economically. Uh, it was very pro-trade. It was a very, uh, was more of a neoliberal kind of outlook on the region. Now we have, you know, of course, the focus on Indo-Pacific as well. Now that has its own sort of connotations, but primarily it was put forward as more of a security uh, strategy by uh the us and now has been well it was first pioneered actually by the late uh pri- Japan, former prime minister uh, shinzo abe but now it has been adopted um broadly across the region through you know multilateral uh, groupings such as the quad etc so to sort of think about actually the way we look at china really determines like the way the rest of us in the region discuss what this region is uh so to come back you know to the to the sort of the nuts and bolts of your question i would say certainly over the last couple of years liberal democracies in this region have seen china in a completely different light especially since the pandemic and china's handling or mishandling of the pandemic and the its behavior in multilateral uh, institutions around the pandemic especially the who etc and its you know its use of of uh, vaccine diplomacy in quite a pointed uh, manner, it's trade bullying of Australia and other countries as well. Uh, and of course, uh, the growing belligerence in both rhetoric and in terms of military actions uh, toward Taiwan, but also in the South China Sea, let's not forget, and and India as well, border clashes with India. So there's uh, numerous examples of, of China, as you say, really flexing its muscles, posing a challenge or, or a direct threat. Uh, to numerous countries in the region. So the the picture is really complicated, because it's still by far the largest economy in the region. And there's so much trade that goes on with China. And there's so many countries, including countries like Australia, would still prefer to have a very uh, amiable relationship and would prefer to have, uh, you know, the economic ties that that they used to enjoy without all the ha- hang-ups of the security concerns. But that's no longer becoming realistic. So now we have a much more securitized economic relationship with China, where security concerns are starting to take precedence over the simple motiva- motives such as you know, profit and loss. So that is uh, really starting to change the, the conversation. Now, of course, different countries uh, have different you know, uh, perceptions of that risk. Taiwan's obviously sees uh, an existential uh, threat from China, but other countries in the region are much more, uh, you know, much more happy about continuing the engagement with China, uh, such as most ASEAN countries, economic relations with China.
1: Uh, There's been a lot of worry, you know, particularly in Western capitals, NATO capitals about China. China dominating future technologies, Uh, artificial intelligence often comes to mind. Uh, You remember a couple of years ago, we had uh, uh, the push from the United States vis-a-vis the Europeans and probably Asians too to strip Huawei uh, uh, telecommunications equipment out of their systems because of the security uh, risks. Uh, Do you see China really now pulling ahead when it comes to technology and leaving the West behind uh, with very uh, deleterious, security consequences for us? Or do you think maybe this idea of, you know, China dominating all of the technologies has been overhyped, uh, and the West uh, still has uh, strengths? Give, give us a sense of how you see this uh, uh, situation at the moment.
0: I think the, this tech race, if we want to call it that, is neck and neck, really. It's, it's quite close. And I don't think there is a natural winner, you know. I don't think. I think it's too early to say. Oh, Taiwan, but sorry, China is definitely going to dominate AI, or the US is definitely going to uh, maintain dominance in, uh, for example, its military dominance in terms of military tech or in other fields. I think right now we're at a pivotal moment where economic policy, trade policy, is becoming so much more pointedly securitized, and there's so much more focus on how do we sort of knock the other guy back a couple of you know places in the race uh, so we can maintain our advantage so let's just look at semiconductors which is a particular yeah. technology i'm quite well versed in uh, being in taiwan obviously you know the yeah. the pulse pulsing heart of uh global uh, semiconductor manufacturing now if you look at china it's obviously trying to leapfrog ahead of uh, Taiwan, South Korea, and the U.S., uh, which are home to the three most advanced semiconductor manufacturing companies in the world—that is, TSMC in Taiwan, uh, Samsung and SK Hynix uh, in South Korea, as well as Intel in the States and Micron to some degree. Now, China would, of course, love to leapfrog and become the 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 head the technological hegemon of semiconductors, but of course, that's a very Uh, tall order. And so right now, you know, recently I did a a story for Al Jazeera looking at exactly how, what is the distance that China has to make up for. Now they're very, they're improving greatly in terms of their, the advanced, uh, we can call it generations of semiconductors, but the most advanced uh, Chinese uh, uh, semiconductor now is like a, a seven nanometer, a process unit. Now that was made recently, it was uh, unveiled this year uh, from SMIC, which is uh, a state-backed company in China, which is their largest uh, foundry of chips. However, it cannot really build that, it cannot really print or, or fabricate those chips at scale, because it doesn't really have access to the lithography machines that you need to create high enough yields to make that profitable. Now, why doesn't it have access to those lithography machines? Because uh, the US government has pressured uh, the Netherlands to ban, you know, to, to not grant an export license to their company ASML to export those uh, multi-million dollar machines to China so that they can fabricate those chips. So there's, if we just look at uh, semiconductors alone, there's like this incredible power plays going on. And we're seeing the US now trying to piece together this so-called chip for alliance between Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and itself as a way to try to, you know, shift the supply chains and create so-called blue supply chains as opposed to red supply chains. So this is all going on. Uh, Whether or not China can manage to harness its incredible research talent and its incredible resources to leapfrog ahead, you know, we'll just have to wait over the the coming years.
1: I understand, Liam. That's an interesting insight. So it's not just one technology, as it were. It's several technologies rolled into one along a complex supply chain. Let yes. me bring Chris in here because Chris always educates me about technology. So, Chris, uh, Liam was speaking about you know, a technology race uh, between the West and China. Um, uh, we He spoke about semiconductors, but what other technologies should we sort of be keeping our eye on?
2: Thank you. Good morning, Liam. And, and uh, good morning, Jamie. Thank you for the question. I think Liam covered chips quite well, and I'm glad he did because I, I won't begin to, to understand it at the level he does. But I, I think of the the big sort of topics uh, for the future, that when we're talking about future te- the future tech race is chips, 5G, quantum, artificial intelligence, and the metaverse. So Liam covered chips quite well. I think on 5G, it's clear that China is the clear leader there. Uh, you can see, you, and you can, it, it's, you can see that this sort of reactive approach from the United States of, of trying to thwart Huawei uh, you know, selling their wares around the world, that, that, that tells you that the United States knows they're behind on 5G. I think also you, you already have some uh, companies in some countries that are already sort of trying to leapfrog to 6G. I think Nokia in, here in, in Europe is trying to do that. But I think when it comes to AI, it's, it's incredibly interesting. I think it's neck and neck between China and the United States. Um, with actually with the United Kingdom not far behind. Interestingly enough, the U.S. and China are also each other's greatest collaboration partners. So the sheer number of scientific collaborations and papers that are co-written between Chinese and, and American uh, scientists increased fivefold since 20, 2010. Now, it's dropped oh, off no. a bit since 2019, but the largest levels of this, this big, thick line of cooperation and collaboration among the science communities in China and the United States is, is significant. And it has been for some time. So they're simultaneously competitors and collaborators. After that collaboration between China and the United States, the next uh, thickest line of cooperation is between China and the United Kingdom on AI. And I think this is where you get into um, something interesting on where the, the EU stands on this. And that is, uh, you know, it, obviously you can see the great gaping hole of Brexit leaves in the tech game for Europe. And I think that's a matter of concern. I mean, obviously, there's t- still talks ongoing about UK access to EU horizon funds. I think in the longer run, the EU needs access to the, you know, needs the UK. They also need Switzerland, you know, small but mighty in terms of tech advances. Uh, there's been a lot of, you know, the, the Swiss are concerned that they won't have access to EU horizon funds anymore. So I, I think, in when it comes to Europe being able to be a part of that competition, I think in the longer term we're going to need a whole of Europe approach, which includes uh, the UK and Switzerland and the and the EU members together pull their uh, resources and knowledge. But interestingly enough, when it comes to uh, AI research, the Chinese scientists have recently eclipsed the Americans when it comes to publishing papers, when it comes to citations of AI papers, which of course tells you about Sort of their scientific importance, so, so that's a, a big one there. But I think what's important in in, in all of these, and I, I'll get to quantum quickly, uh, especially on AI, is just because when you look at the history of technology and industry, just because one country sort of takes the lead and is a first move, the first to have something, doesn't always mean they deploy it the best to take advantage in their economy. Mm-hmm. So you think about it was the uh, steel mill, it was sort of the steel technology, the metal technology developed in the United Kingdom in Britain that Britain was the leader on. But the Americans learned how to do at scale, which allowed for this gigantic uh, industrial and economic expansion in the United States. And of course, what followed in the 60s, 70s, and 80s was, 80s was Japan and Germany learning how to take some of that technology and improve on it further and, and get, grab a bigger portion of the market share. So just because one country or economy is first to have a technology, doesn't mean they're going to put it to the best use for greater economic advantage. When it comes to quantum, yeah. uh, I think in quantum computing, we've talked about that before, uh, You know, the US right now, I would say is the front runner, but what we're seeing is the UK, China and the EU sort of in hot pursuit right behind them. The EU has a great deal of public investment on quantum. Uh, the, U- the United States keeps winning patents, but here's what's interesting the eu is producing a, a as they are producing just as many recent uh, quantum science graduates as the united states but they don't have jobs for them so what happens is the eu is training all these great quantum scientists
1: and then they go work in california, california in silicon valley and-
2: and I was recently in mm-hmm. Silicon Valley when you fly in and you walk around, and you hear a lot of European languages spoken on the, you know, the airplane from Munich to San Francisco is full of young recent graduates who are going to quantum jobs in mm-hmm. Silicon Valley. So, you know, you can see yeah. it there. And I think this is, we can talk a little later about what the EU can do, but I think that's the current state is China leading on 5G, um, the United States maybe with a slight edge on quantum, and I think AI is a toss up
1: but uh, let's go back to Liam Uh, and Liam the the other thing I wanted to ask you um, is the great decoupling I mean you remember this is a term that's been around for a while the idea being that because Chinese technology we had the Huawei debate could pose security risks uh, because of different standards emerging uh, from the West uh, and and China uh, because there would be a free internet versus a censored internet Uh, inevitably we're sort of going to split and some people People would argue maybe that's good for our security because you know we're mm. going to be less vulnerable to Chinese technology or blackmail if we have our own. Others say no, you know this is really the end of globalization and the kind of economies of scale that Chris was talking about that have been the basis of our prosperity uh, uh, for for many years and uh, you know an open free trading environment with good competition keep prices down. I mean, how how do you see this decoupling debate uh, it, again? Is it overhyped? Uh, are you on the side of the the people who think that maybe it's not such a bad thing if China is such a challenge? Or do you think that by alienating China, inevitably, it's going to lead to more of the uh, the tensions and frictions that we're seeing at the moment?
0: Thanks, Jamie. I think, uh, in summary, you sort of need to isolate as much as possible and identify certain risk areas and and sectors where uh, the China threat sort of poses too great a potential pain, either economically or otherwise, uh, to liberal democracies. And in those sectors, certainly, uh, you know, decouple as as far as need be, but it does not have to be across the board. And I would, I would sort of think about it in terms, it's a bit like the great resignation, you know, like, there's a danger of kind of giving into these buzzwords, like the great resignation, of course, with the pandemic, and, you know, people quitting their jobs and things. And that did certainly happen. There was a a time during 2021 where it was like it seemed like a lot of professionals were sort of just staying at home for the for the fun of it. It's it's really going sort of all the way around again. So I think this is more like an ebbing of the tide. And I think what we're seeing is capital and businesses and investment and and engagement with China is ebbing outwards, like like the the tide of a sea, right? Of and so. We sort of reached a high mark, maybe, you know, maybe a decade ago or or something around that time, you know, within the last couple of decades after China entered the WTO. But now we're scaling things back, but we're doing it in a gradual and succinct way. And we're, we're looking at it on a case by case basis. Okay, well, obviously, Huawei and 5G technology, as Chris was talking about, that could pose a serious security threat. Okay, but it does not have to be a complete disengagement. Now, coming back to whether or not that could really happen for example, in the, in the way that now like the EU and, and Russia have almost kind of severed their economic uh, ties, I think there would have to be a, a catastrophic event st- that has still not yet come for such a thing to happen with China. But we've seen some sort of mm, some, some quakes or some versions of s- smaller versions of that the pandemic was one, right? And we've also seen business sentiment, investor sentiment, uh, among the foreign investors in China, really sour. And the capital flight, foreign capital flight out of China has been uh, dramatic this year. And it's going to other uh, developing Asian economies, such as Vietnam, India, Indonesia, et cetera. So there is definitely a trend in that direction. But I would think it would take something like a conflict over Taiwan for a, 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 a sort of something resembling a complete disengagement uh, with China's economy. Now, that would be catastrophic. For, for both the US and China in terms of their, their, their economic uh, mm. growth. So we would want to avoid that at all costs. But as to whether or not a real decoupling would happen, I would think it would have to be caused by some in, in, incredible geopolitical event.
1: But I would like to address the theme of resilience because Chris uh, has been really our resilience expert at Friends of Europe, uh, conducting tabletop exercises for us, looking at critical infrastructure protection, uh, private public partnerships, whole of government response, and so on. And we we have had uh, hybrid warfare scenarios uh, in the. Asia-Pacific region as well, haven't we? Accusations of China meddling in politics and the use of money to buy influence and 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 and, and, and so on. Uh, and so, Chris, uh, with all of your work on resilience in North America and Europe, if you had to sort of give some uh, lessons or at least some advice to uh, the democracies of the Asia-Pacific about how to improve their resilience, what would be the key things that you would, you would emphasize? Again, I have to ask you to be brief because we don't have a lot of time and I want to Ask Liam how he sees cooperation among the countries of the region in this area before we close. Chris,
2: thank you. Uh, I I would like to first start with lessons the West can learn from the Asian democracies
1: because that, when it comes fair, to that's a fair perspective. Yeah,
2: because when it comes to digital democracy, when it comes to fighting disinformation by including average citizens in the government processes, I think Taiwan is the has some of the global best practices there, and I've been we've been saying and writing about that for a while. So I think that's the first thing is that, you know, there are there are things the West can learn from Asian democracies, uh, uh, especially, you know, I think the digital minister in Taiwan, Audrey Tong, You know, she was a former activist to so take a former, you know, <laughs> uh, privacy and human rights activist, put them in charge of digital. And this is what happens is you get yeah. uh, you get inclusion, you get inclusion and transparency on a level that uh, is, is fit for the time and, and, and inclusion and transparency to a level that makes it much easier for them to fight disinformation because they have citizens involved. No citizens can report out to other citizens. But when it comes to lessons, I think, for the Asia-Pacific region, um, the Asia-Pacific region, especially in the South China Sea region, has been dealing with the very sophisticated hybrid adversary in China for some time. Uh, I think in many ways, China has been a more sophisticated actor in the maritime, uh, in the South China Sea region, you know, the Philippines uh, and uh, Malaysia and Vietnam could tell, tell us all some stories we could learn from. But I think the really important difference between Europe, uh, you know, the Europe and Southeast Asia when it comes to dealing with hybrid threats is in Europe we have the EU, we have NATO, we have existing information sharing structures, we share doctrine, we 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 have interoperability. They don't really have that in that region. I think that's the one thing that would really help them a lot is to develop more multilateral structures, more information sharing structures, uh, more better interoperability across not just militaries, but, you know, whole society in in, in these different countries. There's also a really, I have to put in a plug, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute has proposed an Indo-Pacific Center for combating hybrid threats for the region. I think this is a great idea. This is an idea that's overdue. This is an idea that I think could help to to start to share some of the best practices and bring together some of that knowledge in the region. And then I could see a, a relationship between the one in Helsinki and this new one that hopefully comes into to fruition in the yeah, Helsinki. Pacific you're talking region.
1: about the uh, the NATO EU Center in Helsinki. Yeah, the yeah. European
2: Center for Combating Hybrid Threats. I yeah. think if you had one in each region, they could really share a lot with each other. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I think for that region, it's finding new mechanisms to work together.
1: Yeah no thanks Chris and because uh, I'm really grateful for the way you responded to my question because it gives me that perfect lead into the final question unfortunately we only have time for one more back to Liam which is to ask exactly about the sort of cooperation among the uh, Asia Pacific democracies Chris that you were you're were revoking in, in response to the challenge of China and a uh, more turbulent region Liam do you do you see uh, Japan Australia New Zealand Taiwan perhaps other countries of the region Pulling together, there may not be those structures yet that Chris mentioned—a sort of an Asian NATO—but are are the countries increasingly helping each other? Uh, You mentioned the Four Chip Alliance. So there are other interesting initiatives like that to to work together. Uh, Give us a sense of again where things stand.
0: Of course, in fact, the four, the Chip Four Alliance is probably one of the least developed. It's just one of the newest uh, kind of multilateral mechanisms that's been put forth. Uh, there is lots of them. I mean, we we have various new initiatives coming. We've got the Quad, of course, the quadrilateral uh, grouping of the U.S., Japan, Australia, and India. That. Uh, has come a long way since its sort of initial uh, stages. Uh, We have other new initiatives. Uh, Of course, the Biden administration has its sort of flagship uh, um, Indo-Pacific economic uh, community, uh, which uh, it has put forward. um, And that still is not very meaty. It doesn't really have an FTA component. It's not really... um, very robust yet, but it's, it's it's in the initial stages of developing. I think the real difficulty about discussing kind of uh, the Asia-Pacific region is it, there's so much, it's such a diverse region and it's it's difficult to kind of discuss the nuance between what we can call, what we would say like uh, the, the fully fledged kind of liberal democracies as those you just mentioned there, Jamie, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, etc. Uh you know, with some of those other countries which are maybe either somewhat uh, imperfect democracies or they have some kind of, or they're not democracies, but they're very open to business. Singapore, for example, is is a great example. And other uh, countries, especially within ASEAN, there is a whole plethora of different kinds of political regimes. So it's difficult to kind of create uh, a sort of clear consensus as to what they want. But they overwhelmingly do not want to become simply vassal states of, of a sort of new Chinese hegemony. So there is a d- clear uh, motivation for them to cooperate together to offset and to sort of uh, diplomatically hedge against uh, China's overwhelming size. But at the same time, they don't want to just be sort of ordered around or, or taken advantage of uh, by Uncle Sam. So, a lot, of, especially countries in ASEAN, they're looking. For the US to offer some carrots and they're, they're looking for the US to open up you know in terms of new free trade agreements etc do something especially economically uh to give them the impetus to g- give us a, another option other than just China's enormous market perhaps yes we prefer doing uh, business uh, maybe with uh, US companies and, and US investment is very very welcome but if there is not that level of of investment and if Uh, The US uh, domestic economy seems a little bit withdrawn and there's not as much of a willingness upon the US government to sort of engage in that sort of uh, completely open free trade that was the signature uh, trade policy for almost all US administrations before Trump. Then you know, countries in in the region are, are going to be a bit cautious about over relying on the U.S. as well. So there's a lot of hedging, there's a lot of balancing. But I think it's very interesting to see how some region, some countries are creating kind of unlikely or, or um, unexpected kind of partnerships. I mean, ne- just last year we've had we've now got India selling. Missiles to, to the Philippines, like Brahmos missiles, which are these supersonic missiles, right? I mean, th- this was just not happening before, even though both states are very um, greatly care about their strategic autonomy, but they're both partners. Uh, the Philippines is an ally of the US, but they both are concerned about China's uh, ambitions. So we see a lot of interesting, surprising new. Uh, partnerships emerging in this region, and there's there's a lot more I can I can go into, but for the for the sake of brevity, I think keeping things if the U.S. and other uh, you know and the EU as well can encourage more economic engagement uh, with liberal democracies and like-minded nations in the region. I think that would go a lot further in in proposing in offering some sort of a counter. Uh, Counteroffer to to China's uh, economy,
1: yeah. Okay, Liam, thanks a lot. Chris, too. I mean, if I draw, have three takeaways. It's engage, engage, engage. And uh, I, both of you have sort of very well described the risks and challenges. But you also emphasise the the opportunities. Nature abhors a vacuum, uh, and uh, we have a lot of similarities in the kind of problems we're facing. But the region also wants some more engagement from the United States and European. How we do that, of course, would be a fascinating topic to get you both back into the studio soon uh, for another Friends of Europe podcast. But today you've given us in 30 minutes a fantastic, uh, and I mean that sincerely, uh, a geopolitical, geoeconomic, geotechnological overview uh, of of the region. I learned a lot. I'm certainly wiser now than I was 30 minutes ago. So Liam, on behalf of Friends of Europe, a massive thanks to you for joining us today. I, I didn't even ask you about the time difference there with Taiwan. Uh, But hopefully uh, it's not too crippling in terms of, you know, being there at 3am or whatever to join us. Uh, Chris, it's always great to have you with all of your insights. Uh, Dear listeners, I hope uh, you enjoyed today's uh, podcast as much as I did. Thanks, as always, to the Friends of Europe production team. And uh, please look forward to next week's podcast. Uh, But for now, for me, Jamie Shea from London, goodbye and thank you for joining us.
0: That's it for this Frankly Speaking podcast consider subscribing to our newsletter or following us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And don't forget to
2: tune in again this time next week.